As many of you know, over the last few years, I've been giving a series of talks here at the Forest Refuge on the Satipatthana Sutta. It's the sutta the Buddha gave on the four foundations of mindfulness. When we read this discourse, it's really quite remarkable how in a few short pages the Buddha lays out an entire path of discovery, starting with mindfulness of the breath in the body, leading through awareness of feelings and the mind and mind states, all the way up to realization and understanding of the Four Noble Truths, that understanding which actually liberates the heart and mind. And all the different methods and techniques of Vipassana, of insight meditation, they're all rooted in this discourse of the Buddhas. And it is amazing that in this one sutta, it's like, contains all the different aspects of the Buddha's teachings. So it's quite remarkable. As we explore these four foundations of mindfulness, I thought it would be helpful to define and clarify a few important terms before picking up the series of talks where we left off last year. So although these particular words in Pali have very specific meanings, in translation it can be a bit confusing because in English these words have some overlapping meanings. We use the English words in different ways. And so when we hear them, sometimes it's confusing as to what they actually mean. So in tonight's talk, I'd like to clarify just a few of these terms, but it's not really as a philological exercise. Rather, hopefully, this explanation will help us understand some important aspects of our own minds, of our own experience. So what are these terms? The first of them is consciousness. And in Pali, it's generally the translation of the Pali word vijnana or jitta. And in the Buddhist usage, consciousness means the ordinary ongoing process of knowing the six sense objects, that is the five physical senses and objects of mind. And this, con- this process of consciousness, of knowing, is going on in all beings all the time. It's going on in animals as well as human beings, in babies and children as well as in adults. You know, and so just to get a sense of the meaning of consciousness as it's used in this way, it's interesting to observe you know, maybe a pet or a small child or an infant And we can see, we know that they're experiencing sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations and emotions in exactly the same way we are. Consciousness is there. Consciousness, or this simple knowing, and its object, whether a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation, object of mind, the knowing and its object are always arising simultaneously. They're two aspects of the same experience. And they can be distinguished, the knowing from the object, but they can't be separated. So it's a unitary experience with two different aspects. And you might understand this in this way. Look at this. And you can see the color and the form. And color and form are two different things. The color is blue, the form is rectangular. You can't separate the color from the form. The color is in a form, and the form has color. So it's a unitary experience, but two distinguishable aspects. So this is an important understanding. 
it's what we take to be self, you know, what we conventionally call self, is really nothing more than this endless progression, moment after moment, of knowing an object, consciousness an object, rolling on throughout our lives. It's this process that we're calling self, that we're calling I. Okay, so this is the first term, consciousness, or simple knowing. The second term, which often gets confused with knowing, because in English we can confuse the usage, is the term mindfulness or awareness. And awareness itself has many different meanings, but in the context of tonight's talk, let's think of awareness and mindfulness as being synonymous, although there are other explanations of awareness as well. Okay, so what is mindfulness? Mindfulness is that observing power of mind. And it's described as that observing power that comes face to face with the object. That's how that particular fact is described in the Abhidhamma. Coming face to face with the object, not wandering off. We could think of it as a present moment remembering of what the object is, of what's happening in our experience in the moment. Now usually, as we're being mindful, the mindfulness is directed towards the object. That's our usual mode of being mindful. Mindful of a sight or a sound or a sensation or a thought. But the mindfulness can also be turned back onto the knowing itself. So knowing can become the object of mindfulness. Okay, there's the ordinary knowing of different objects. And this is how we usually go through the day, just engaged in our various daily activities. With ordinary knowing, ordinary consciousness, we're simply playing out or acting out all the patterns of our conditioning. And I like observing this kind of consciousness particularly in watching the neighborhood dogs. You know, I call it black lab consciousness because you can just see the dogs, they're just being basically led around by their nose by, this, by the sense of smell. And it's just, you know, they're, they're, you can just see the consciousness going here and there, jumping from one thing to another. There's not much, I would say there's not any, mindfulness present there. It's just this process of knowing, of consciousness. But sometimes, for us, and this happens more frequently as we practice, we remember what we're doing as we're doing it. You know, we observe the present moment arising, this observing power of mind. We're also mindful that we're knowing. Right? So we remember in the moment what we're doing. We come face to face with the object. We're mindful that we're knowing the object. So mindfulness is quite a strong, powerful factor here. You know, Louise Erdrich, who is a Native American writer, captured the power of awareness, I think, very well in these lines. She wrote, those powerful moments of true knowledge, which we paper over with daily life. But every so often something shatters like ice, and we fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. Yeah, it's just such a nice image, like the river of our, of our existence, kind of going along, simply knowing, black lab consciousness, but every so often something shatters like ice and we drop into the river of our own existence with mindfulness. It's like we become aware of what's happening in the process. So there's a very simple example of how this works, you know, of how mindfulness functions in this way. 
just imagine yourselves at uh, the movies, at a cinema, and totally absorbed in the story. You know, and we feel happiness or sadness, excitement or fear, depending on, on the story, on what's happening in the movie. And then maybe we have a sudden remembering, oh, this is just a movie. You know, and we go from being totally lost in or absorbed in the story of what's happening, and there's that moment, you could say it's a kind of settling back or remembering of what it is that's actually happening. We remember, we become aware, we become a mindful, oh, this is just a movie. We're just seeing images on the screen. Before this moment of remembering, before this moment of mindfulness, we were conscious. Consciousness was still there. We were knowing what was happening in the story. So this is the difference between simple knowing or consciousness and then that moment of mindfulness which remembers in the moment what's happening. It's like we wake up to what's happening. In the simple flow of consciousness, we don't know that we're knowing and we don't understand in a deeper way the underlying realities of what we're experiencing. So we're still experiencing the story and the light and the color and everything on the screen, but without mindfulness, we're just lost in it and we don't understand the underlying truth, the underlying realities of what's going on. So meditation practice leads us quite quickly to some very important insights. And this is an insight that we've all had. It comes rather quickly in our practice. That is, we see how often we become absorbed in the story of our lives. You know, we get lost in the various sense realms, various sense worlds of sight and sound and smell and taste, just like that black lab. We're just going through our lives from one sense experience to another. And we see how often we get lost repeatedly, over and over again, in the movies of our minds. You know, all the thoughts and images and memories and plans and fantasies. All the emotions and all the attitudes we have about experience. I'm sure you've noticed many, many times, it's like hopping on these trains of association. We can start out with a quick image or a quick thought. And a minute later, five minutes later, 15 minutes later, we wake up having gone on this incredible journey. It's like we just hop on these trains of association. We get carried away to these unknown destinations. Now, there's an interesting little turn of phrase here. Now, often we call this the wandering mind. But the mind actually is not wandering anyplace. The mind's not going anyplace. It's just that different objects are arising in the moment. There may be thoughts, there may be images, there may be emotions. Different objects are arising in the moment, and we're not mindful of them. We're lost in them, and that's what we call the wandering mind. And even though we'll use that term very often in talking about Dharma practice, I think it's helpful to relanguage it a bit. Because wandering mind somehow implies that we have to make this big effort to drag it back. Whereas if we see that it's not that it's actually wandered, it's just that something has arisen that we haven't been mindful of. So we're still right here in the present moment, and it's a question of just opening to what is there. Don't underestimate the importance of this insight. 
of seeing how frequently we get lost in the movies of our minds or in the realms of the senses. Just seeing this, just seeing this is of tremendous value. Because through seeing it, we also understand the power of mindfulness to wake us up. Most people don't know this about themselves. You know, if you just go up to people who are out, you know, who haven't done any meditation practice or particularly some, some discipline of looking at their minds, does your mind wander? No, 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 I know what I'm doing. I'm present. It's like people have no idea until the first time they sit down. It doesn't take long to see what it is that our minds are doing. And because it's not seen, there's no motivation to actually awaken from this dreamlike movie of our minds. And so mindfulness and this insight of seeing what our minds are doing is tremendously powerful. I'd like to read this. This is a uh, Dharma poem by Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, who was one of the great uh, Dzogchen masters. He said, mindfulness is the root of Dharma. Mindfulness is the body of practice. Mindfulness is the fortress of the mind. Mindfulness is the aid to the wisdom of innate wakefulness. Lack of mindfulness will allow the negative forces to overcome you. Without mindfulness, you will be swept away by laziness. Lack of mindfulness is the creator of evil deeds. Without mindfulness and presence of mind, nothing can be accomplished. Without mindfulness, you are a heartless zombie, a walking corpse, a black lab. (laughs) Dear Dharma friends, Please be mindful. By the aspiration of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, may all Dharma friends attain stable mindfulness and ascend the throne of perfect awakening. You know, so I think you will know. I mean, you wouldn't be here if you didn't. The power of mindfulness to awaken us. We awaken to our lives. Now, this observing power of mind helps keep the balance between effort and concentration. We really learn how to balance, to practice in a relaxed way. And as we find this balance of relaxed alertness, we begin to feel increasing subtleties in our experience. You know, we become more intimate with the body. We, be, we go beyond the concept of the body, the concept of form or the concept of solidity. And we begin to feel the body in terms of this energy field of changing sensations, you know, of pressure, of tightness, of vibration, of heat and cold. And instead of moving through the day just intent on where we're going, or intent on the next thing we have to do. We become more mindful in seeing. We become more mindful of shades of color. Become more mindful of different qualities of sound. More subtle undercurrents of thought and emotion. Gradually, the mindfulness, as we practice it, becomes more continuous and more refined. And then as we experience or observe the experience in these more subtle ways, we also become aware of the various attitudes in the mind about them. For example, when we observe or check the attitudes in the mind about physical sensations, let's say unpleasant physical sensations, we can see a lot of different attitudes that might be present. 
we might see a fear of the discomfort. You know, we're sitting and we begin to feel a little pain. And maybe in the moment it's okay, but there may well be an attitude in the mind of fear, oh, it's okay now, but what's it going to be like in half an hour? You know, and that fear actually colors our experience. There might be the attitudes of self-pity. You know, if we're sitting with some discomfort or a lot of discomfort, and that's the attitude that's generated. Or avoidance, you know, giving sidelong glances at it. Or just basic aversion, we just don't like it, we want it to go away. Now, although we may be somewhat mindful of the sensations themselves, you know, the pressure, the tightness, the unpleasantness, often the attitudes in the mind about them go unnoticed. We're so identified with these attitudes that we don't even see them. And I mentioned to one or two of you in the interviews an experience I had in Burma, which was so illuminating about this. I'd been practicing there for some time, and the practice was going well, and my body was quite open and flow of energy, but there was this one kind of knot in my neck, and I was being mindful of it. And, and I went to report to Upandita, you know, that everything, the, the energy's all flowing, and it's open, and nice, pleasant feelings, but there's this one block. And I thought I was reporting this quite objectively. But he sort of got on my case for calling it a block. And in doing that, I realized that just in that terminology, there was contained the attitude of aversion and desire. Right? By calling it a block, I was observing it with the wish for to go, not liking it, and the wish for it to go away. And it, that those attitudes had been completely unnoticed because I thought I was being objective. I thought I was being completely, oh, block, block, block. <laughs> and so this is why it's so interesting to really look at the attitudes in the mind. We can see attitudes not only with these physical sensations, which are quite frequent. We have usually quite a lot of attitudes in our mind about thinking. Saira Utejaniya, who many of you have practiced with, and he was also here last year, uh, has wonderful teachings about this. He said, when the mind is thinking, just be aware of it. Thinking is a natural activity of the mind. You are doing well if you are aware that the mind is thinking. But if you feel disturbed by thoughts, or if you have a reaction or judgment of them, there is a problem with your attitude. The thinking mind is not the problem. Your attitude, they should not be around, is the problem. When you feel disturbed by the thinking mind, remind yourself that you are not practicing to prevent thinking but rather to recognize and acknowledge thinking whenever it arises. If you are not aware, you cannot know that you are thinking. The fact that you recognize that you are thinking means that you are already aware. That's a very important point. The fact that you recognize that you're thinking means that you are already aware. So watch those moments which happens many times in a sitting where you go from being lost in the thought, lost, 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 and then at a certain point the mind wakes up. We know that we're thinking, don't jump over that moment. Don't rush back to some other object or get lost then in a judgment about having been lost. Just that moment when we wake up from being lost illuminates in a very powerful way the nature of awareness. We've just gone in that moment. We've gone from being deluded, ignorance in the mind, to mindfulness. Do you see this? So for as many times as you get lost, 
that many times you awaken. Value that moment. Pay attention to it. Really recognize, okay, what just happened? What is this quality of awareness? What's the nature of awareness that is different than having been lost? So, so much can be learned. And you will have endless opportunities to learn it. One helpful aid in strengthening this comprehensive view of mindfulness, where we're not only being mindful of the object, but also of the attitude in the mind about it. You know, so we're really developing a 360-degree mindfulness of our experience. One very helpful technique, which Sayadaw recommended and I have found extremely uh, useful, is to frequently ask the question, what's the attitude in my mind about the present experience? We can do this with sensations in the body. We can do it with the breath. You know, you would think, oh, I'm just feeling the breath. There's not, there's probably not any kind of attitude in the mind. I've been amazed. I sometimes sit, just feeling the in-breath, the out-breath, and then I'll ask the question, what's the attitude now in my mind? Very often, I'll say, oh, there's a kind of wanting, or leaning forward, you know, wanting to get calm, or wanting to get concentrated, or wanting the next breath. It can be very subtle. You know, it's not some... It's not some major lust, but it's something. There's some attitude there which is leaning into it. And what's interesting, in the very moment of asking the question, what's the attitude, often just by asking the question, the mind stops identifying with it and we can feel that release, you know, the sense of ease and greater openness. So check the attitude often. Ask the question. A good feedback, a good reminder for us in practice to ask the question is the feeling we often have in our practice of struggle. Do you ever have that sense? That somehow the mind is just struggling in the practice? This feeling of struggle is extremely helpful feedback. What it's telling us is that something is present in our experience that we're not accepting. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. So struggle always signifies non-acceptance. So at times... You might feel the struggle, but not particularly recognize the attitude in the mind. You kind of check the attitude, but you know, you're either because lost in the struggle, or it's just the mind is in a little state of confusion. You don't know what's going on. There's a very simple and effective tool to use. And I use this a lot, particularly uh, in some of the earlier years of my practice when I was struggling a lot, when that that sense of struggling with experience came often, what I would do is I would just settle back and ask myself the question, okay, what's happening? Knowing that struggle meant non-acceptance, I would would just sit back, ask myself the question, okay, what's happening now? What's actually here? And what I would find, I would imagine you will have similar experiences in times of struggle when I ask that question, okay, what's happening? Often I'd find just some unpleasant sensations that I wasn't accepting, that I wasn't open to, that I didn't like. Maybe there's some kind of mood or emotion that we're unaware of, that we're not open to, and so there's a sense of struggle. You know, we can be trying to be with the breath, but something else is calling us, but we're not open, we're not acknowledging it. So we're in this kind of inner conflict. 
maybe it's not accepting a run of thinking. You know, that we're judging it and wanting to get rid of it. Struggle could be something as simple as not accepting the breath just as it is. You know, wanting it to be different in some way. Struggle in practice can also take uh, very specific, or have a very specific manifestation. It's when we feel impatient or discouraged, when we realize that meditation practice is not all about pleasant, blissful feelings. And you may hear that and think, oh, I know that. But even for very experienced meditators, how often do we measure and evaluate our sittings? Pleasant is good, unpleasant is bad. Now, maybe not on retreat, but at home you have a sitting and you get up. Somebody asks, oh, how was your sitting? Oh, it's great. You know, I felt light and calm and you know, really easy. Or on another day, how was your sitting? Oh, it's terrible. I had so much pain, you know, and I was struggling. This is how we measure our sittings. Very, this is our conditioning. And it creates a struggle for us because that's not what the practice is about. The practice is about, and this is just to reinforce what you already know on some level, but maybe just to water the seed a little more. The practice is about to be about being aware of what we are actually feeling in the mind and body, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. This is actually a sign of deeper understanding. Again, uh, Saido has great words about this. I I love this little teaching. He says, you have to accept and watch both pleasant and unpleasant experience. You only want pleasant experience. You don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is this fair? Is this the way of the Dharma? (laughs) I like that. You don't even want the tiniest bit of unpleasant. And I like it because it rings so true. And so somehow we need to understand our practice in a way that, that... Let's go of that conditioning and really sees that it's about openness, it's about mindfulness to whatever is present. Sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant. That's irrelevant. In all of these situations, you know, in watching our attitudes about sensations, about thoughts, about emotions, in understanding where struggle come from where struggle comes from you know in our not being open to something that's there it's mindfulness it's this factor of mindfulness that recognizes and observes what it is that's happening but mindfulness by itself is not enough and here we come to the third important term in this meditative journey You know, we've talked of consciousness, just the simple knowing, of mindfulness, the observing power that comes face to face with the experience. The third important term is wisdom. Now, wisdom arises out of mindfulness, and it combines the quality of investigation. We're really investigating what we're mindful of, combines that quality with what the Buddha called right view or right understanding. So with the continuity of mindfulness as the foundation, it's like mindfulness is the platform. When we're no longer simply lost over and over again in the stories and activities of our lives, we can begin to investigate and it's 
we investigate what is the nature of this experience? What are we learning from this experience? So just as an example of the progression from simple knowing through mindfulness to wisdom, we might have a superficial knowing of a sensation. And there may be the thought, oh, my back hurts. Okay, so this is just simple consciousness. It's simple knowing. And we create a concept around it, my back hurts. Then the observing power of mindfulness really comes closer, comes face to face. And we see that what we're calling, oh, my back hurts, we see more closely and we see that that experience is a combination of very particular sensations. Right? So we go just from the superficial knowing, my back hurts, to a mindfulness and awareness, oh, there's pressure, there's tightness, there's burning, there's pulling, whatever the particular sensations are. Then wisdom takes mindfulness even further. Wisdom investigates what am I understanding from being mindful? What am I learning from this connection with the pressure, the vibration, the, the actuality of the experience? Now our understanding, or what we learn from it, happens or can happen or manifest on many different levels. So I'll just take a, an example. Suppose we're experiencing some painful sensation. So mindfulness brings us face to face with it. Wisdom investigates. What do we understand? What are we learning? We might understand the painful sensation as being a danger signal. You know, if you put your hand in fire, you don't want to just be mindful. Oh, burning, burning, burning. Oh, yeah, I'm experiencing the changing nature of the burning. <laughs> no, we need the wisdom. We need the wisdom. Are we learning something? Yes, let's take the hand out. So that's the function of wisdom. Or we might understand the painful sensation as coming from too much efforting. You know, we see, we're, we're experiencing the painful se sensation. We investigate. What are we learning? Oh, there's too much efforting. And so then we relax a bit. We relax our efforts. We might understand that same unpleasant sensation as simply being some of the accumulated tension that we carry. And it's mindfulness which has made us aware of it. And so if we understand the sensation in that way, then we make the space just to allow it, to feel it, to let it unwind. We might experience that same unpleasant sensation through investigation and wisdom as just a manifestation of the elements at certain stages of insight. You know, as we walk along this path at different stages, just as a function of those stages, Sometimes the elements manifest as pleasant, sometimes as unpleasant. So all of this is in the domain of wisdom, of understanding. When we bring wisdom to bear on what we're feeling in the body, it can also reveal a lot about the nature of consciousness. And I had this experience just uh, this uh, last February. I was on doing a self-retreat at home. And those of you who are here probably remember February was a really miserable month. <laughs> I mean, it was really cold. It was freezing cold, very icy. I, I don't remember. It was like a world of ice. And so it was... Walking outside, you know, during that month, it was just like this cold, frozen wasteland with a kind of bitter cold wind. And so I'd be doing walking meditation and just cold, cold, 
very unpleasant. You know, it was like that was the first hit. But one of the things I like about the New England winters is that it's so intense. It's like it demands our attention. You know, it's impossible to ignore. And so in the context of a retreat, just all of this cold, you know, and feeling the unpleasantness. So then I started just investigating, okay, just the knowing quality, the knowing quality of the cold and realizing you know, as I had before, but again it became very vivid, that the function of consciousness is simply to know. It's like a mirror reflecting what comes in front of it. The knowing doesn't care whether it's pleasant, whether it's unpleasant. Consciousness simply knows. And then it so happens that I had two friends who were doing also a meditation retreat down in the Caribbean, and so as I was walking in this freezing cold, <laughs> aware of the knowing and the unpleasantness, I would start having these pleasant fantasies about, oh, it would be really nice to be down there with them. And then, you know, all the pleasant feeling of that. So I just noticed the pleasant feeling, and then the unpleasant feeling of the cold, and then the simple knowing. And it became very clear. And this was the wisdom-minded work that each of these aspects of the knowing, of the feeling, they were just expressing their own nature. Consciousness has the nature to know, that's all. It knows pleasant, it knows unpleasant, it knows the cold. Feeling, that, that mental quality, mental factor of feeling, has the nature to experience the taste you know, of the object. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? So it's just... Consciousness knows, feeling feels. It's all just nature unfolding. So all of this is the work of wisdom. Based on mindfulness, wisdom also manifests as right view. And we can see this in relationship to thoughts. Again, this is from Sayadaw, and it's It's a very good teaching. He says, It does not matter whether thinking stops or not. It is more important that you understand whether your thoughts are skillful or unskillful, appropriate or inappropriate, necessary or unnecessary. And so again, we're bringing... Mindfulness becomes aware that we're thinking, and then wisdom investigates. Okay, is this helpful? Is it not helpful? Is it wholesome? Is it unwholesome? And that last question is really helpful. Is it necessary? <laughs> I, I, I think we could free ourselves from a lot of uh, trouble if we just ask that question more often. Is this necessary? <laughs> no. <laughs> when mindfulness recognizes that thought is present, So that's the function of mindfulness. Oh, thinking is present. Wisdom can then do something else, not only noticing, oh, is this wholesome or unwholesome. Wisdom then can do something very interesting. It can investigate the nature of thought itself. So in this level, it's not about the content. It's about really looking, investigating, what is the nature of thought as a phenomenon? What is a thought? Very few people, I think, in their lives ask that question. Mostly, we're just carried away by our thoughts, acting them out. It's very rare to sit back and say, okay, well, what is it as a phenomenon? And it's very interesting to do that. Because when we look at what a thought is, we see that unnoticed, it has tremendous power. It runs our lives. I mean, just like the black labs are being led around by their sense of smell, we're basically the black labs of the mind. <laughs> we're just being led around by our thoughts. You know, thoughts come, go here, go there, do this, do that. So unnoticed, they have tremendous power. Noticed, when we really investigate the nature of a thought, 
we see how insubstantial they are. There's, there's little more than nothing. Yeah, and I'm sure you've seen this in your practice, in that moment of waking up to a thought, something that you may have been totally engrossed in and involved in and in turmoil about, and then realize, ah, this is just a thought, this is just a movie. And we see the insubstantiality of it. So it's wisdom which investigates further what we're being mindful of. And we see that it's all just nature unfolding. It's the nature of thoughts, it's the nature of feelings, it's the nature of the elements of the body. But so often we personalize this flow of experience. You know, we take it to be self. And this is almost always a source of suffering. So I'd like to read something to you. This is Detective Story Dharma. So this is a passage from a book, a novel, by John Burdett, who wrote... He wrote a series of books, but this particular book is Bangkok Tattoo. And in this series, it's set in Thailand, it's set in Bangkok, and the detective uh, is quite a Buddhist practitioner and quite attuned to the Buddhist teachings. He kind of is aware of past life influences. and So in the book, this detective is always bringing in kind of the Dharma perspective. Uh, okay. You see, dear reader, speaking frankly without any intention to offend, you are a ramshackle collection of coincidences held together by a desperate and irrational clinging. There is no center at all. Everything depends on everything else. Your body depends on the environment. Your thoughts depend on whatever junk floats in from the media. Your emotions are largely from the reptilian end of your DNA. Your intellect is a chemical computer that can't add up a zillionth as fast as a pocket calculator. And even your best side is a superficial piece of social programming that will fall apart just as soon as your spouse leaves with the kids and the money in the joint account, or the economy starts to fail and you get the sack, or you get conscripted into some idiot's war. To name this amorphous morass of self-pity, vanity, and despair, self, is not only the height of hubris, it is also proof, if anyone needed, that we are above all a delusional species. We are in a trance from birth to death. Prick the balloon and what do you get? Emptiness. Take two steps in the divine art of Buddhist meditation and you will find yourself on a planet you no longer recognize. Those needs and fears you thought were the very bones of your being turn out to be no more than bugs in your software. You never know where the liberating wisdom will come from. (laughs) So consciousness, just the simple knowing, mindfulness, that observing power of mind that comes face to face with experience, whether it's the object or the knowing itself. Mindfulness wakes us up to what's happening. Wisdom, that investigating factor of mind, which really looks, what do I understand from this experience that I'm mindful of? So we need the mindfulness, but it's not enough. We need to investigate and learn something from it. And we learn the impersonality. We learn, we see 
for ourselves the impermanence, the changing nature. We see the futility of attachment to that which changes. All of that is the wisdom factor of mind. You know, when we understand the role of each, of consciousness, of mindfulness, of wisdom, it's like installing the program that debugs the defilements. We free the mind, we free the system from the defilements of mind that cause suffering. And we realize what the Buddha said in the very opening lines of the Satipatthana Sutta. We realize this for ourselves, that this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So this is our practice, you know, and I think the clearer understanding we have of all of these factors of mind, then we can really apply the teachings and come to this realization. So let's sit for a couple of minutes. Right now, what's the attitude in your mind about whatever you're experiencing? Is there wanting? Is there openness? Is there aversion? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.